So hello again, it is October 2020. Um, the fall is here and we're going to talk about a fall related topic. We're going to talk about Amanita mushrooms, but specifically looking into the antidote psilobinin or psilomarin, depending on which version of it you're looking at. I was going to uh, start with uh, an interesting case report that it's kind of like, a, I think, an average case, but the way they got my attention is they came up with a sort of subtitle, catchy line that basically was survival following investigational, investigational treatment of amanita mushroom poisoning, thistle, or shamrock. Um, so this was a case out of Iowa. In fact, it was the first ever case they had out of Iowa. It was only a few years ago in 2014. Um, they talk a little bit about amanita toxins, which we'll go into depth how it inhibits irreversibly RNA polymerase to through the AMA toxin version of it. 60% uh, of it is absorbed and then excreted in the bile. And they say the advice to treat it is sort of all over the place. We've got NAC, we've got high-dose penicillin, we've got this milk thistle thing we're going to talk about. And, you know, the authors come, there aren't any randomized controlled trials, but um, in toxicology, there are a few of those, unfortunately. So this is the first case in Iowa. A uh, 71-year-old presented 48 hours after eating wild mushrooms, camping in northwestern Iowa, had nausea, vomiting, watery diarrhea, classic symptoms. By the time he got to the hospital, his AST was 2313. His ALT was 2730. His bilirubin was 1.5. His INR was a tad bit elevated at 1.3. Creatinine was 2.7. They called the Iowa Poison Center. They said, use IV NAC. They did use IV penicillin. They did. Um, and then they mentioned this slobinin thing, which was available at the time through an open-label phase two, phase three trial and took some machinations, but they eventually got IV slobinin going as well and actually the patient did well and they got, sort of raised the question is like we the doctors I think felt pressured and then conveyed some of that pressure to the patient to enroll in a research study based on very little information that they had and they talk about what is the you know the risk of enrolling people when they're ill or potentially someone's telling them they're about to die perhaps from liver failure or need a liver transplant so, of course, many patients would otherwise enroll in such a trial, considering that the adverse side effects of the antidote are low and the risks are high and it's open label. It's not like we're going to get a placebo. Um, and so they wondered ethically about that question. Now, there was a letter by our colleague in toxicology, Mike uh, Mullins and Evan Schwartz, and a group from St. Louis, saying, Hmm, what's the big ethical question here? There's a lot of animal studies, and sometimes it's the best we have. Um, the efficacy there was good. Um, you know, it's impossible to say with or without psilobinin that he would have done well, but it seems to be the standard right now. And there was a reply from the author saying, yeah, well, of course, we're going to do the balance of risk and benefits, and they're always hard to quantify, but really, if all we have is these animal studies, this is kind of thin ice. And they pondered, as they did in the original thing, did the milk thistle, the psilobinin, actually make them better, or was it just plain luck, i.e. the shamrock involved in their title? 
So let's talk a little bit about, because a lot of these articles have nothing uh, to compare to except traditional, sometimes decades-old death rates from literature, from selection bias studies. So I want to talk about two epidemiologic articles that talk about what the real liver injury and what the real fatality rates may be in 2020 or thereabouts. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Jen. Yeah, so the first study um, that I'm going to talk about is called Acute Liver Injury and Acute Liver Failure from Mushroom Poisoning in North America. Um, and the database that was used uh, for this is the U.S. Acute Liver Failure uh, Study Group Registry, um, which uh, is used for looking at all causes of acute liver injury and acute liver failure. And so this group looked uh, between 1998 and 2014 uh, with a goal of describing um, some of the characteristics of acute liver injury and acute liver failure uh, over the 17 years uh, due to uh, mushroom ingestion um, and look at the mortality and the transplant rate in patients who had acute liver failure due to uh, mushroom ingestion. So, um, like I said, they looked uh, over a 17-year period. There were 32 sites, 16 that were currently active in the registry. Um, and they identified 18 patients uh, over that time period, so very small cohort, uh, 13 with acute liver failure, 5 with acute liver injury. Um, the criteria that they used for acute liver failure was the presence of hepatic encephalopathy of any degree, uh, moderately severe coagulopathy, so an INR greater than 1.5, uh, onset of illness less than 26 weeks, the and the absence of cirrhosis whereas acute liver injury was uh, moderate to severe coagulopathy with an INR greater than or equal to two, again, onset uh, within the last 26 weeks and the absence of cirrhosis. Um, and they go on to describe some of their uh, criteria that they use for hepatic encephalopathy um, and the INR and their sort of discussion of the MELD score. Um, their primary outcome was 21-day transplant-free survival uh, and their secondary outcomes were listing or receipt of a liver transplant. They compared their acute liver failure and acute liver injury patients, and then they also compared their spontaneous survivors with those who either died or required a liver transplant, and that was described. That was a category of non-spontaneous survivors. Um, like I said, it's an established database. They did have data on... Um, demographics, uh, requirement for other uh, supportive care, so mechanical ventilation, vasopressors, CRRT, um, and then the use of some other uh, directed therapies like NCL-cysteine, silabinin, charcoal, uh, penicillin, hemoperfusion, and MARS. Um, and so what they found, like I said, 18 patients over a 17-year period, which represented 0.8%. Of the registry. Um, important things, eight were in California, three were in Pennsylvania, one was in Oregon, um, and the time of ingestion of the mushrooms was available for 10 patients. The average time from ingestion to admission was about four days, um, and the time from ingestion to admission did not differ significantly between the spontaneous survivors and those who either died or required liver transplant. 
those three and a half days in the spontaneous survivors, four and a half days in the non-spontaneous survivors, which I thought was kind of interesting. I would have predicted that perhaps the non-spontaneous survivors had a longer average day to presentation. Um, and so looking at the sort of big uh, demographic table where they compare the acute liver failure and acute liver injury patients, like I said, 13 with acute liver failure, five with acute liver injury, the things that stood out to me um, in terms of therapies, 85% um, of those with acute liver failure got N-acetylcysteine, whereas 100% with acute liver injury got N-acetylcysteine, so relatively similar, again, like one patient difference. Um, in terms of psilobinin treatment, so more, one, like four patients in the acute liver injury got psilobinin, three got it in the acute liver failure group, um, there's a difference in those who receive penicillin, so more patients who had acute liver failure seem to have gotten penicillin, whereas only one with acute liver injury got penicillin. Um, no one with acute liver injury required mechanical ventilation, vasopressors, or CRRT as a, as a treatment therapy. Um, of those who developed acute liver failure, five patients got transplanted and six uh, spontaneously survived. Whereas those with acute liver injury, one patient got transplanted and four spontaneously survived. Um, one of two patients in the uh, non-spontaneous survival group, uh, one died at 13 days, um, and one death was actually from uh, aspergillus, um, as opposed to from like multi-organ failure potentially related to their ingestion. Uh, when you look at the non-spontaneous survivors from in the spontaneous survivors, again, looking at the treatment therapies um, in the non-spontaneous survival group, um, sort of this equivalent number got N-acetylcysteine, more spontaneous survivors got psilobinin, and more of the non-spontaneous survivors got penicillin. And like I said, you know, the non-spontaneous survivors, six of them got uh, transplanted. Um, so the authors uh, sort of describe a few key things. Um, I think first, this is a relatively low, um, co a small cohort of patients uh, that we have that develop acute liver failure or acute liver injury from this ingestion. Um, liver transplant is a safe and successful therapy for those who develop acute liver failure with it occurring in about half the patients. Um, but none of the directed therapies like N-acetylcysteine, psilobine, and penicillin um, were uh, shown to be like associated with survival um, when you look at it between the two groups. Um, so I think sort of still looking uh, for some adjunctive therapies that are not transplant uh, as a way to support uh, these people um, was something that they were discussing uh, quite a bit. Um, that was really good in that one. Yeah. yeah, maybe the, you know the take-home statistic is you know in now uh, 2020. Remember this was published 2015 actually. Um, you know the overall survival rate of a really sick selection bias group was like 85 percent. So when they say, well, people you know 40 percent of people used to die before we had psilocybin, it's a bit of a inflated other selection bias kind of group. But again, it took them. You know, one patient per year over the course of twenty, so almost years. twenty years, yeah. to get there. So this is a super select, sick group of people who made their way to liver transplant centers and got studied a little bit more definitely. And you can't tell any of the anecdotal therapies we used made a difference. Yeah. 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 Y
the second paper uh, is also an epidemiologic study looking uh, at poison center data. Uh, it's called Current Fatality Rate of Suspected Cyclopeptide Mushroom Poisoning in the United States. And as Zane um, alluded to, where you know we are searching for potential therapies that are not transplant that may help in the care of these patients, there is some concern that based off of small studies and case reports that um, groups may uh, sort of erroneously report fatality rates and erroneously report as improvement rates um, based on old data. So this group uh, aimed to look at the fatality rate of patients who ingested mushrooms in North America using poison center data. Um, and so it was an 11 year retrospective review and they looked between 2008 and 2018 at uh, all suspected cyclopeptide mushroom ingestions reported to the National Poison Center data system. Um, their inclusion criteria were patients older than two years of age, history of eating foraged mushrooms, GI symptoms within 48 hours of the ingestion, and an AST or ALT above the upper limit of normal value for the reference range within 48 hours after the ingestion. Um, and what they did was they um, obtained, uh, of the ingestions that met that criteria, they obtained the records from the poison centers um, and reviewed um, all of the data that was available. They selected only patients that had either an abnormal LFTs or GI symptoms, and then they um, pulled all the data from those records uh, using uh, basically two people to review the chart. Um, and looked at some of the characteristics of those cases. And so what they found was over the course of the 11 years, there were almost 9,000 mushroom exposures that had either GI symptoms or abnormal LFTs um, in, that were reported to the poison center. Um, and when they uh, looked at um, those that had um, both uh, GI symptoms and abnormal LFTs, that left only 300 cases. Um, so they wanted both sets of inclusion criteria. So they had three, about 300 cases that they requested poison center records on. Um, the response rate from poison centers was about 60%, and they accounted for about 60% of the individual cases. Um, so ultimately, they had 150 cases left in their final data set to review. Um, overall, they found that the mortality rate was about 9%, um, and uh, that did not uh, change whether or not patients got treated or not treated with silabinin or silamarin. Um, it was 8.5% in those who were not treated with silabinin versus 9.5% in uh, those who were treated, and like I said, the overall fatality rate was 8.8%. Um, other things um, that were the most commonly identified mushrooms uh, that were identified by a mycologist were Amniocoloides and Amanita bisphosphorescera. I'm going to mm -hmm. completely mispronounce that. Um, there were two deaths in uh, mycologist identified mushrooms, and in um, the yeah, and then the death rate was similar in patients who had an, a mycologist-identified mushroom and they were treated with silabinin, or a mycologist-identified mushroom and they were not treated with silabinin, and that rate was 10% in both. Um, so the things that they sort of talked about um, that were interesting, so in their study, 
20% of patients who actually met the clinical criteria, um, once they can, like evaluated the mushroom that was ingested, they were non-cyclopeptide-containing mushrooms. So there is a fraction of patients in this group that actually may not sort of fit um, what we're looking for in terms of a treatment group. Um, so that was sort of interesting. And as they also found, um, there's no sort of single therapy that seems to really make an impressionable difference in terms of their treatment. Um, and they really push the need to do well-designed randomized controlled trials for these therapies uh, in terms of evaluating their efficacy in treating these ingestions. Um, and like, as I mentioned, that the uh, mortality rate sort of equivalent, uh, equal across all groups, whether or not they get treated, um, and is a relatively low, uh, a relatively small population of patients. Um, so yeah, I think those were sort of the big takeaways from that one as well. Yeah, I think they went a little beyond the usual poison center, like we just grab all the charts and check the clinical outcomes right. and morbidity and mortality issues. They actually got the actual patient records. Right. I know you were one of the centers that supplied them pretty extensive patient records and liver functions and whatnot on the cases that we had. Um, you know, and the bottom line is that this death rate of 40 plus percent that's often reported doesn't bear out. And this is, you know, everybody who's likely an amnita containing mushrooms over that 11 year period. Um, so with modern supportive care, people do well, but nobody can come up with the psilobinin or psilomarin in IV or otherwise make a difference. And you're right, to do that study would be impossible with humans, we'd have to get a big animal study. One of the criticisms, because we use oral psilobine, and they mentioned like about a third of the cases were oral rather than IV. Um, criticism we've often received is, well, the bioavailability of psilobine orally is pretty poor. Um, and that's true, but I think there are some ways the pharmaceutical industry has responded by enhancing the bioavailability. Talk about two different types of um, psilobinin products that are out there, we're going to uh, take a couple of different looks at it different ways. So the first up is Matt. So this is an article that was looking at the bioavailability of psilobinin, which is also known as psilocybin, uh, depending on where you are, compared to a psilocybin phosphatidylcholine complex, so that's the molecule attached to it. Um, essentially, what part of part of the molecule that makes your phosphatidylcholine bilayer in a special oily medium in soft gels to assess like, which one is more readily absorbed. Um, this is because uh, saliva generally is very poorly water soluble and it, is, it has very erratic absorption of baseline. So the question was, does this other complexing of the molecule make it more easy to be absorbed? Um, I, so I think just to provide a little bit of background, we typically, in, what we're talking about is using psilocybin for specifically for amatoxin poisoning. But these capsules are widely available, and people use them. Have used Ucilamera, which is the the general complex of of flavonoids and flavolimines derived from the milk thistle plant, of which psilobinin is one of these flavolimines. Um, and they've used it for thousands of years for different like hepatic diseases. It's still widely used, especially in Europe nowadays, for people with hepatitis, cirrhosis, and other high blood liver diseases, due to perceived benefits of the psilobinin. 
and they comment that generally the psilocybin is, is makes up the biggest proportion of the um, the milk thistle extract, kind of what half of the total what's uh, the plant contains. Overall, as I said, it's poorly bioavailable, bioavailable. But oh, but the benefit is of this plant extract is that it's relatively safe with with really no perceived significant adverse effects, even in patients with chronic liver disease. So given the uh, possible significant benefits for these people with severe liver disease or no hazards to their profile, it's hailed as a kind of a panacea for these individuals. Uh, Silobinin has been found to have predictive basic science studies, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antifibrotic, and even cancer-preventing effects. They didn't comment on this article using, uh, using silobinin for amatoxin poisoning, but from the mushroom world, um, it also inhibits amatoxin absorption, which is what we specifically care about. Um, so the, the question that they were looking at was, is complex in this molecule with the phosphorylcholine increased bioavailability? They did a very well-designed study where they took um, two groups of people, 12 men, 12 women, and enrolled them in a prospective, single-blind, randomized crossover trial. One individual was uh, eliminated from the uh, crossover study due to non-compliance with diet during their washout period. So it ended up being a 12 in one group, 11 um, in the other. And essentially all individuals that were enrolled were otherwise healthy, a total, total normal transaminase function, biliary function, normal LFTs, no other underlying disease, no hepatitis, no HIV, no hepatitis C, and no other significant systemic comorbid diseases. After a fasting period, they were given either they were given two different commercially available products. One was a 45 milligram capsule or a tab of the psilocybin um, non-complex uh, drug, whereas the other one was a 70 milligram capsule of the um, psilocybin. Sorry, that, that's backwards. So the 45 milligram drug was the uh, was the psilocybin phosphatidylcholine um, combination. The other one was the 70 milligrams. Of the just the plain silomarin. And essentially, after they administered this drug, they did a regular uh, blood serum evaluation for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, up to an hour, and then kind of spaced stuff out further from that up until a total of eight hours and averaged it all out and um, through liquid gas liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry, they were able to analyze the concentrations in the serum and then draw the curves that they desired. They um, obtained a number of pharmacokinetic parameters based on this, including the maximum concentration and the area of the curve. But the things that are most salient for us was that in the patients who had the small, um, who had the psilocybin phosphatidylcholine capsules, they um, found that the concentration maximum in these people's serum was 207 milligrams per liter, whereas in the individuals who took just the regular caps, it was 12.5 milligrams per liter, and accounting for the, the, the difference in the amount of psilocybin in each capsule, it ended up being that there was a 15 times increase in absorption of the psilocybin phosphatidylcholine complex, which is dramatic compared to the pretty measly absorption from the um, uncomplexed uh, variety. So I think the biggest takeaway from this is that it was a very well-designed study, and it shows that uh, putting it in a fatty base with a phosphatidylcholine um, linkage on it significantly increases the absorption of this drug. They didn't really do much translational medicine. Um, after this point, it was just looking at more of the pharmacokinetic parameters 
of the Drug Administration and Absorption. Um, so I guess that the questions that I would still have from this is that does having that, that phosphatidylcholine complex of, um, affect how well the drug inhibits the organic acid anion transporter, which is what we care about, or at least mushroom toxicity, when it comes to inhibiting amitoxin uptake? Um, they also didn't look at like, how this might affect the general um, grouping of chronic liver disease and all the other um, uh, systemic diseases that it's given for. But I think for the purposes of does this work, yes, that complexing with phosphatidylcholine makes it significantly more bioavailable. And it might be something to consider in patients who are tolerating um, PO. If there's more studies that show that it does inhibit amitoxin um, uptake, that it's another option to give it than just IV. Yeah, I think it's just good basic science to calculate serum concentrations. I tried to look through all the like the official product available in Europe, an open label trial here, the Legalon still, and there actually isn't any good pharmacokinetic data as far as what is the level you achieve with an intravenous formulation. So these are the levels at least with one oral formulation. Um, we're going to talk about one other company that also did similar studies with a different form of psilomarin, which they call SMEDS, which we'll explain what that is in a second, but we'll turn to Dana for that. Dana, you're uh, muted.
look at the pharmacokinetic properties. Uh, these studies have been done in animals before with this type of product, but not in humans. So they took uh, 12, they had 12 uh, volunteers, six male, six female. Uh, I'd say you know, normal adult age, weight, height, uh, um, and they were given as an open label, single dose uh, under fasting conditions, um, and then chest uh, blood levels to try and calculate pharmacokinetic parameters. Uh, patients, sorry, patients, volunteers uh, had to be healthy with no sort of medical history. Um, they had to pass a, a physical, non-smoking, non-pregnant. Um, they couldn't have used anything, medication, vitamin, herbal for, for two weeks prior. Uh, no oranges, pomelos, uh, or grapefruits for a week. Um, again, for all of these, makes sense as effects that potentially could change uh, the individual metabolism, and so you would get the baseline uh, for you know adult, an adult patient. Um, and then you know caffeine, and no donating of blood up to ninety days prior to the study. Uh, so these volunteers were given um, a SPETS formulation that contained 140 milligrams of silymarin, um, which they say is calculated as 60 milligrams of silybinin. I'm not entirely sure what their calculation is, other than if they measured, you know, and there was a certain uh, ratio of the mixture that contained the silybinin. Um, but it did seem a, a, a little bit odd that it wasn't, you know, a very, a very, very well-calibrated uh, product. And then uh, they go into the uh, polysorbate 80, some hydrogenated castles, PEG, propylene glycol, all these lovely things that were used to make these tiny little microemulsions. Volunteers were given a single dose. Um, they weren't. They were on fasting, so ten hours without eating. During the study, they were all given um, standardized meals for lunch and dinner to make sure that that also wouldn't compromise any kinetic data um, or absorption and anything like that. So, similarly to some of the other studies that um, were looked at, that. And they got 10 mLs of blood, regular time points, so 0, uh, 15, 30, 45 minutes, an hour, an hour 20, all the way up to 12 hours after the initial administration. Um, the samples uh, were taken and processed. Um, and eventually analyzed using uh, liquid chromatography with tandem mass spec. Based on you know other studies, they had you know that they had an internal standard that um, had a similar extraction ratio and could be used uh, along with the silybinin, uh, and they used the two, that as the compound to make sure. Um, you know, volume-wise and other tiny differences that can occur throughout the, the processing. Um, they said at the, towards the end of their methods that they develop 
notes and validated their methods according to EMA and FDA guidelines um, for precision, accuracy, selectivity, linearity, recovery, and stability. However, none of that data is actually available. Um, and I'll talk a little while later why that might actually be important. Uh, they then went and actually calculated the elimination rate. Um, so the elimination rate constant, uh, KE, was used from actually measuring the slope of the linear regression line uh, on log, the log graph of the plasma drug concentrations. Some of the problems, unfortunately, with this um, have to do with data and how they actually did partially for calculating these um, pharmacokinetic properties, but then also for the actual um, processing of the samples. So overall, they, they came to the, the conclusion that their product um, when compared to other studies that use a traditional capsule containing uh, silymary, that this SMEDS formulation was approximately, uh, got to a max concentration approximately twice as fast as a conventional capsule, um, and that the high concentration, that peak, was about five times um, higher than normal. A normal product, and the AUC was 1.7 to 2.5 times higher. Now, I mentioned some of the, the their calculations and their processing were a little bit off, and uh, I don't have access uh, necessarily to the journal, but uh, there is graphs showing one showing the average uh, the, for each time point and the concentration. When you look below that, there is a graph that shows the individual time points for each volunteer. And when a volunteer would have a measurement that is below the level of detection, in this case it was 4 nanograms per mil, there's, I guess, it's a little difficult to decide how to include that data because it's not technically, um, especially if you're still able to see peaks, but you can't actually say what it is because it's below um, your the level of detection, the, the extent to which you can confidently say that your measurements are accurate. Well, when looking at the individual data points, you may notice that it seems that they took these missing or unknown um, measurements and just removed them in calculating their averages because the easiest one to notice is at 10 hours, there's a single patient who still had a measurable concentration, and the average for what we would think would be all 12 patients is essentially the exact same. They're both very close to that 10 nanogram per mil level. If you go back a little bit then, just to see if this carries through, um, at the eight hour mark, there's about maybe five data points, so five of the volunteers had measurable levels, and again, the average concentration is pretty close and in the middle of those, but it doesn't, again, take into consideration the other six or seven patients that had unmeasurable concentrations. So when you get to that terminal, 
elimination map, initial uh, distribution, if this is the line that they're actually using, it is quite inaccurate. Um, you, so um, that was, I guess, you know, the first thing I noticed regarding the actual um, kinetics. But then it would still, if you're worried about elimination, but based on the formulation, um, once the silly uh, marin is you know, released, uh, it should have a, re a relatively similar kinetic parameters to the other formulations. So maybe that's not quite important. Um, and if your maximum concentration is significantly higher than that, you know, low level of detection, that maybe it doesn't really matter. It's not going to change the AUC very much because these doses um, at those late time points are so insignificant compared to, to peaks. And so that is something that it seems to be a comparison between the SMEDS formulation and these other studies that looked at a more typical uh, silybinin castle. The two studies that were actually cited, um, I went and decided to look and see and to make sure that they would actually be comparable. Uh, typically, you really shouldn't take data from one study and compare it to the results of another study um, because there are there are a lot of factors that can that can play a difference. Um, and you know, you can't necessarily say that they're equivalent. Um, for these particular studies, I at least wanted to know if they were process. So were they measured the same? Um, could these at least be the same method was used to make these measurements and maybe a little bit more um, of a, a little bit more acceptable to be making some of these claims? Well, for the long story short, they didn't use like the same processing at all. Um, there is an odd part for this individual study when they talk about processing the samples that they they centrifuge, remove supernatant, um, eventually they evaporate down, um, which makes sense. You want to have a very concentrated sample, but then they reconstituted it and centrifuged again and collected that supernatant, which did not occur in either of the other two studies um, that had been cited. I personally cannot, I don't understand what that second supernatant potentially could have been. Um, but if these other studies are looking at um, a different part of the plasma or perhaps by adding a second centrifuge uh, a second time, it helped release some of the drug from some of these microemulsions, I, I truly don't know. Other big differences. Um, for the mobile phase. So when you're looking at comparing for two different studies that are looking at LC tandem mass spec, um, they were both using the same um, times and molecular weights to recognize their actual medication, the drug, the compound of choice, and, just, and actually compute 
um, how much was there to quantify it. Um, but some of that, the the ionization, so the size of the particles won't necessarily change, but the timing can. And that's actually really important because the other studies were optimized and tried to measure all, or the top like six um, of the flavonoids that, that silly marin compounds and uh, measure all of them to be able to see how much was in any individual uh, dose. In looking at those studies, silymarin A and silymarin B, or sorry, silly uh, bindin A and silybindin B are very close in their elution time and have the exact same uh, initial as well as uh, ionized fraction, um, daughter ion uh, size. So if just by changing the actual elution uh, solution uh, could have changed how well those are separating from each other. And unfortunately, we don't have any of the data to say what, what any of this information is. Um, looking at, the again, the two studies that they specifically cited, um, both of them also had a, a, a slower flow rate. So again, that helps with the um, having that break, <laughs> that uh, separation. Um, of, in elution times, those ones both ran at a quarter mil per minute versus the study that was half a mil per minute. Um, and by measuring all of the um, compounds, as well as measuring known quantities of these compounds using a standard that was you know purchased and uh, spiked into blank plasma, um, you know I I feel much more confident that those other studies. We're looking at actual, you know, the pharmacokinetics, um, but this one I don't have any of the data to support it. It's using a different procedure, and I don't know how much was actually recovered. Um, they mentioned a couple things about stability, but not again the data. They say that things were um, were kept uh, and like you know frozen, but it doesn't specify that as soon as the samples were drawn or if they were, you know, at, after everything was drawn, then they were put at a controlled temperature and transported. There's really a lot of questions um, about the validity of their procedures that there's just not enough detail to be able to say anything along the lines of making their, you know, their absorption at the end that there that this product um, was a two times faster but that there's any difference especially that there's any difference in the max concentration or AUC because if they're they're different processes they're um, from you know from the beginning so um, it's a kind of measuring your apples and oranges um, and not not necessarily what you actually want to be measuring. I was I was surprised, in fact, that this study after the other ones, because it did seem to be missing those details and seemed to be much more uh, rustic, almost, in that they're using the same LC tandem mass specs, so being able to measure multiple compounds as opposed to just the one, um, and 
surgery, obviously using a different procedure than what has been used um, by multiple other studies for this quantification. Um, that there was just something that this procedure just was not up to par to what seemed to be some sort of standard uh, or some sort of at least repeatedly used um, protocol. Uh, so again, a very long story, the short of it being that, you know, this study looked at their measurements, they did have a faster peak, um, they did have a higher peak, a higher AUC, but without having any sort of uh, placebo or any sort of control, so um, giving the patients either, you know, an IV to check the kinetics or giving them the the other formulation and testing them at the same time or in the same study using the same method. Um, the, this is really can't be made. Um, I guess it could be suggested, but based on the lack of detail and some of the um, other compounds that are so incredibly close in time for to the psilocybin um, for a much slower. Uh, through mass spec, I would be potentially um, worried that it, it, you're not only measuring that single compound and that the data is not reliable. Um, maybe it works, that'd be awesome. It sounds like a very cool dosage form. Um, this just is not a study that tells very much about it in humans at all. Oh, oh, well, thanks for that really deep dive into the techniques in, involved. And it certainly sounds like, you know, with these articles, you can't compare one to the other. I mean, I, I guess at a, a minimum, you can say that keep when you keep diluting things to get levels, you, you don't know really where you're at. But the level seems to be higher with these sort of enhanced things, whether it's phosphatidyl or emulsified ones and our typical oral ones, which sometimes are really just the crushed leave encapsulated in a, in a powder. Um, but again, the intravenous formulation doesn't have at least relatively available pharmacokinetics to show that it reaches a certain level. And ultimately, we may have to say, is, like, is the serum level really what we care about? Do we care about like what is going on inside the hepatocyte? Because that's where um, the mechanism of action of this drug is probably the most important. And there's a lot of other articles that also suggested that you know, people with certain chronic liver diseases may actually have higher serum levels depending on which compound was used. Again, suggesting that if you've got cirrhosis and this can't get into your liver because all your liver cells are dead, essentially are dying, then maybe we're measuring the wrong thing. So I think uh, a lot of the criticisms that are the bioavailability of the crude form probably is true. The enhanced viability of different oral forms possibly is better, but we still don't know what the therapeutic serum level is that's going to make a difference, and does the serum level really make a difference, or is it something going on inside the liver itself? I want to kind of take a little step back and talk about how this even works in the first place, now that we know how you can get it in its various forms. Um, it's an area of biochemistry we don't talk about very much, and it relates to these 
organic as organic anion transporting polypeptides or OTPs, and to tell us all about where they are, how they work, and why different meds may be important at this level beyond just silymarin mushrooms, um, is John. Yeah. So um, this uh, paper is titled "Classification of Inhibitors of Hepatic Organic Anion Transporting Polypeptides Influence the Protein Expression on Drug and Drug Interactions" by Carlgren et al. out of Sweden. Um, this is a similar group that's also published a lot of research on ABC transporters. Um, published in the Journal of Medical Medicinal Chemistry in 2012. So a little background on the OATPs. Um, this is a family of um, polypeptides, transporter proteins, um, that are ubiquitous. So they're, they're present throughout the body. Um, the ones that we're going to talk about, two of them are primarily in the liver, um, on the basal lateral membrane of human hepatocytes. Um, and all of these um, transporter proteins mediate uptake of xenobiotics and organic compounds, um, specifically the ones in the liver, taking something from the you know portal blood and bringing it into the liver where it's going to then be exposed to CYP family enzymes, the, you know, metabolic enzymes and, you know, the insides of the liver cells um, to also be exposed to the metabolic pathways. Um, so you can appreciate the uh, potential of importance or role that OATPs uh, may play in determining intracellular concentrations, xenobiotic uptake, and um, are of big interest to um, you know, pharmaceutical industries. Um, the three transporter proteins that we're going to discuss today are the OATP1B1, OATP1B3, and those both are expressed primarily in the liver. And then the other one that was studied was the OATP2B1, which is present throughout the body, including the liver. Um, historically, 1B1 has been studied the most so far with little data on the others. Um, so given that background, this uh, group um, set forth a few aims where they wanted to identify specific and general inhibitors of these, of these uh, transporter proteins. Um, they wanted to then study the inhibitor pattern exhibited um, by the substrates um, and see if they could find any features that determine inhibition. Um, and then they wanted to further try and take these um, in vitro and um, computer science models that they generate for the study and uh, translate it to some in vivo kind of results through another study where they looked at genetic expression of these through subjects. Uh, so they really did a lot of different types of science um, for this study, and we'll kind of dive through all these piece by piece. Um, so they started with a, a data set of um, drugs that they are normally taken orally, and um, they created the set from previous studies they published on OATB1B1 inhibition, um, as well as a recent review um, that was published um, on drug transporters by the International Transporter Consortium, um, and then further expanded the list to include known interactors of CYP450 enzymes. So total, in all, they looked at 225 drugs that are taken orally with a wide range of um, lipophilic um, properties, a wide range of molecular weight from 94 grams per mole all the way up to 1,200 grams per mole. Um, and they found that the two biggest uh, categories that seemed to play a role uh, were uh, lipophilicity, um, 
as well as um, polar surface area. Um, and then they further kind of looked at how important those are for different enzymes and we'll, or different transport proteins, we'll get into that in a little bit. But now having this big list uh, with a bunch of known inhibitors, they then created a model um, to kind of test how much each one of these drugs inhibited the aforementioned transport proteins. The one, one issue I have with this is, so they took kidney cells, I won't dive into the, like, all the specifics on how they did this study, but they took uh, embryonic kidney cells and they transfected these uh, OATB1B1, 1B3, and 2B1 transport proteins onto the membrane, and then they took a couple substrates that are known to uh, be um, transported by these um, OATBs, and they just created a, a curve of the rate of um, movement. And they were able to find, you know, both a uh, saturable as well as a linear um, component on the curves, you know, showing that there's OATP dependence of these substrates. So then they have an idea of what the normal function and the rate of transport of these uh, transport proteins is, and then they can apply these drugs to see how they're inhibited. The one problem I have with this is that they use kidney cells. Kidney cells have a, another OATB transporter that is not studied, 4C1. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know much about it, but I, you know, I believe it plays a role in digoxin. Um, so it definitely transports some things of import. Um, that's just one aside. Um, anyway, they took these kidney cells, they took these drugs, and they looked at the percent inhibition for the different respective transporter proteins. Um, and they described a compound being an inhibitor if it um, decreased the uptake by at least 50% compared to the control. Out of the 225 drugs, 78 were inhibitors for OATP 1B1. Um, and in this study, they discovered four new novel ones. Um, uh, diazepam, nifedipine, novobiosin, and then coumestrol. Um, for the OATP 1B3, uh, transporter protein 46 of the 225 were found to be inhibitors. And since there's less information on this enzyme, or it's a protein, um, 13 of those were new. And then for the OATP 2B1, 45 of the 225 were inhibitors, and again, 29 were new. They also found a number of stimulators, um, and I think this is an important part uh, to take note on, because one of them was testosterone, which um, has been reported to be an inhibitor, um, but in this study, it was actually found to be a stimulator of OATP 2B1. And their reasoning for that is that, well, it may be based on the different concentrations in the studies. But I think that's an important factor that if you have different concentrations, you may have an inhibitor or a promoter of these polypeptides, further complicating things. Uh, they also, you know, testosterone, you should note, also doesn't need to, it doesn't need a transporter protein to cross the membrane. Um, so it may be having an effect on the internal aspect of the polypeptide, just further complicating things. Um, they compared the overlap of all these different inhibitors. Um, there was notable overlap between 1B1 and 1B3, the two hepatic polypeptide transporter proteins. Um, 67 of the drugs um, were also noted to be CYP interactors. Um, so they kind of looked at um, comparing the CYP450 interaction, which could be an inhibitor, an inducer, or just a substrate. And then they looked at the OATP, and it looked like there was 73% overlap. 
Um, so the 73% of the drugs on this list both inhibited an OATP transporter, at least one, and then also had interaction with the CYP450. Some other things they did, <laughs> um, uh, they uh, then kind of took all of these findings and um, they tried to create a um, what they called an in silico model. So they tried to create a computer model using uh, multivariate analysis um, to determine um, if they could predict if a drug would be an OATP inhibitor. Um, and through their regression models and their multivariate analysis, they're able to have a pretty decent um, accuracy um, between, the, I think the lowest was 75% uh, and the highest was 92% for the different enzymes. So OATP 183 had a 92% accuracy in predicting um, if there were the drug dose inhibitor, which I think was an interesting step forward in just kind of initial screening of drugs because now they have this model where they can say, hey, this is likely to be an inhibitor, so we should study this further. Um, they then took 13 compounds from that list of 225, um, and they created a mix of general inhibitors, so meaning they inhibit more than one of those transporter proteins, specific inhibitors where they only inhibit one of those transporter proteins, and well as um, um, substrates that were also known to have an effect on other um, transporter proteins, like the ABC cassette um, transporter protein. Um, and then they looked at the inhibitory concentration, so meaning the half maximal, um, like 50% of inhibition, and uh, if they could get that concentration at less than 20 micromoles, which was the initial concentration they used for the study to determine if there was actually inhibition before. Um, and in parallel with that, they then predicted, based off of the initial um, study with the kidney cells looking at the percent inhibition, if they could determine what the um, inhibitory concentration of 50% would be, so that they were basically trying to create a further screening process where instead of using multiple different concentrations to get a good curve and look at the inhibition, they could just do a single concentration of a drug at 20 micromoles, and if that produced a inhibitory concentration 50% or more, they could say, yes, this is adequate to say this is an inhibitor. And they wanted to look at the accuracy of that um, and it looked like they were able to do that pretty well. The all but one of the uh, drugs of, of interest that they looked at, um, they were able to predict. Um, so using just a single concentration kind of screening study with one concentration, they could fairly accurately predict if there were inhibitors of these OATP enzymes. Which I think is a great, like that's a great chemistry thing to look at because now you can just do one simple test in a petri dish and say, okay, this is probably an inhibitor, you need to study this one further, and you can screen out a ton more with a single test as opposed to multiple tests. Um, here's where it got more interesting. Now they started to bring some humans into it. Um, so they took those kidney cells and they tried to determine what they called maximal transport activity, um, where they looked at the activity rate of all of these kidney cells and how quickly they could move something across the membrane. And then they looked at the concentration of the transporter proteins um, on the cells themselves. So how, how well expressed the transporter proteins were. And they calculated a quantification somehow of that. Then they took 12 human volunteers and they took samples of their uh, liver cells and they looked at the um, expression of uh, 
their OATP transporter um, proteins on the membrane. And then they compared that to the in vitro study, and then they tried to create a big, this is a leap, but a big approximation from in vitro to in vivo, so they could actually try and predict how, um, how big of an effect an inhibitor would have on these proteins. Um, and then, so a big assumption here is A, that the inhibition is competitive, um, which it may or may not be. Um, there are lots of studies that kind of detail multiple binding sites on these proteins, potentially. Um, there's no real clear, like very well clear, crystallized structure of these proteins yet. Um, so that's a big assumption, but uh, if you follow along with that assumption, then they, are, they have a, um, they're able to kind of look at how well everything is inhibited. Um, and that's a pretty interesting um, figure, which I'll just kind of go over. Um, so uh, what they did is they looked at atorvastatin uptake of all of these transporter proteins, because that is a very well studied, and it is um, it interacts with all three of these OATP transporter proteins, um, 2B1 being the least. But again, remember the 1B1 and the 1B3 are both present only in the liver, um, and so these ones are going to have the majority of uptake. And they compared that, uh, so the control was just the uptake of the torvastatin, and they compared that by adding aliquots of those other 13 compounds, or of a, a range of compounds that were inhibitors, specific inhibitors, general inhibitors, and uh, it was um, pretty remarkable to see how that affected, because if you knocked out one, if you knocked out one transporter protein, the other ones would then have a market increase in their uptake, um, which may or may not have that big of an effect, because for example, OATP2B1 has a very limited uh, maximal rate of activity, and so you may increase its you may increase its contribution from a baseline of six percent of overall uptake of atorvastatin to thirty three percent, but it really is not going to change the overall clearance or number. Um, but if you do affect the other transporter proteins, you can drastically change how well something is um, taken up. Um, a couple of drugs of note. Um, so looking at the overall clearance. Um, uh, atazinavir um, goes from you know normal 100% clearance as a control to 9%, so it just really inhibits kind of all of the um, transporter proteins and really prevents any uptake. Um, similar drugs like uh, rifampicin goes down to 16% overall, ritonavir 20%, sulfasalazine down to 26%, um, and cyclosporin A down to 15%. Um, and looking at the characteristics of all these drugs, it, um, the more lipophilic and the um, larger polar surface area seems to be correlated with a good inhibitor. So, overall, they did a lot of things in this big paper. Um, I think they set out to further identify characteristics chemically, and I think that they did that with the uh, lipophilic properties as well as the polar surface area being important to classify inhibition, which could be a good screening process just looking at a drug. Um, and then they um, further characterized that by proving a single concentration inhibition study can relatively accurately predict whether or not there's an inhibitor um, of a drug so that you've got this good screening process now that could really um, kind of speed line things, um, excuse me, streamline things so that if you have a drug of interest that you want to know if it inhibits these proteins, then you can just do a couple tests and then you, you have a really good answer on, yeah, it's probably an inhibitor we should investigate or not and let's move on. Um, 
they showed some really interesting like overlap between 1B1 and 1B3 and how these two transporter proteins really have a lot of similar characteristics. Um, and then 2B1 is vastly different. Um, so you know, there's a big difference in the amount of uptake um, from these three proteins. Um, and I think another thing which I forgot to mention is they did look at the, uh, with the 12 human subjects, they looked at the um, expression of the three different transporter proteins individually. And um, they showed, which, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention, there was a huge variation, specifically in OATP1B1, where the, some people had no expression and some were expressing, you know, 10 times more. These are relative units. They, they just said relative units, what's their unit? Um, and so genetic variation is going to also play a huge role in, you know, the expression and the ultimate uptake of all of these. Um, overall, really interesting. There's definitely a lot more drugs out there that, you know, are inhibitors of these enzymes, which may play an important role and something that we could use as a treatment if we want to block uptake through an organic anion um, transporter protein, um, such as a tanzenzapir, <laughs> uh, or cyclosporin A, um, if you're willing to do that. But I, I think it's just really interesting that it's kind of like showing there's a lot more research that needs to be done because there's a lot of complex interactions that we don't know about. Yeah, no, excellent uh, discussion of uh, sort of the drug discovery. Um, you know, I know psilonarin, it's speculated mechanism in that action, which is not even proven, is that it inhibits OAT, uh, P1D3. Yeah. And even though it's been used as a herbal for centuries, essentially, there may be other drugs out there that do the same thing. And this like a way of finding, going through 200 plus drugs and saying, hey, here's, here's the top 10 that would work. And then you can look at the list and go, well, which of those are toxic and which of those are less toxic? Like just giving a torvastatin to somebody is probably no big deal. Giving cyclosporin to somebody, mm, probably give me a little bit of pause before I would be willing to do that. But certainly the basic science, animal lab science behind this and amanitin poison is still way yet to be done and maybe take years and years before you can see any of these. Um, I think, uh, one thing I do want to point mm. out is they studied penicillin G in this. Yeah. And it didn't qualify. It didn't work very it, well. Yeah, yeah. It went to like the mid 40s percent. The threshold was 50. I thought that was pretty interesting because it's mm. one of the things we use to try and limit uptake. What were the strongest ones? There, the ones I had on my list that I put little checks next to was that at Tazanavir. Uh, cholecystokinin, endocyanine green, which is a dye to calculate your creatinine clearance, uh, pentavastatin, which is a statin not available here, rifampicin and rifampin, both cyclosporin, glycorrhizic acid, and rapaglinide. Now, some of those have side effects. When I mean, you give rapaglinide to someone, they get hypoglycemic. You give cyclosporin to somebody, you know, they can have some inhibition of their marrow, perhaps. Probably not good things that you want to do in someone who's got possibility of going into organ system failure. But, um, so there's a bunch of other drugs there. And again, they didn't even look at um, silamarin. I mean, it's listed in one table yeah, as it far as its ability. Three. It's like a one little note that it historically does inhibit 1B3 and 2B1. Uh, but other than that, it doesn't really go into details. Um, but the biggest problem um, is that most of these patients come in too late. I mean, they, they ingest the mushroom. They get the amanitin. It's absorbed through uh, intestine into the liver, to the portal system. 
and you know they go and uh, by the time they show up and they're starting to feel sick, a day has gone by as or two days as in the index case we talked about up front, and it may be too late to inhibit the uptake of amanitin into the liver as we found over and over again. So to kind of finish up with what is the one other thing we could do once they show up in liver failure, um, we have sort of the ECMO of the liver, which is Mars, and uh, Courtney's going to tell us about that. So this is an interesting study because it's a look at the early initiation of Mars dialysis for amnita-induced acute liver injury and uh, the prevention of possible liver transplantation. So this is a study out of the Annals of Hepatology in 2016 from the Department for Transplant Medicine and Internal Medicine at the University Hospital of Munster in Germany. Um, and they are reporting on their experience in patients that they've identified as severe uh, liver injury in the setting of a known ingestion that has been admitted to their ICU. So they start by just reviewing um, what the toxins that they are concerned with in terms of these ingestions. So Amanita has two principal toxin groups, the phthalotoxins and the amatoxins, and they're both cyclic peptides. Um, but the three most important amatoxins are resistant to heat, low pH, proteases, and are not soluble in water or ethanol. Um, so the phthalotoxins are not taken up by the enteromucosa, um, and you'll have early GI symptoms with that. But the amatoxins are enterohepatically recirculated, which is what we just mentioned. They cross cytoplasmic membranes, and have the effects of inactivating the RNA polymerase, uh, too, which leads to uh, transcription issues in the liver and kidney and metabolically very active areas. So they uh, do note the four distinct phases of the acute liver injury after amatoxin ingestion, but just go on to say that transplant is really the definitive management that's usually uh, pursued, and you'll see that after about uh, one to three weeks, unless the patient dies from multi-organ failure. They have suggested that extracorporeal albumin dialysis, or ECAD methods, um, such as the MARS system, which is a specific type of ECAD, that's the Molecular Adsorbent Recirculating System, have shown improvement in general intoxications of acute, uh, that result in acute liver failure. So previously it's been used as a time bridge until an organ donation is available, um, but the mechanism uh, by which it works is that it selectively removes protein or albumin bound as well as water-soluble toxins through an albumin impermeable filter. Um, the other system that I will briefly mention later allows uh, the patient's albumin to flow through and then it's actually filtered through two other columns. The MARS system is generally not available. Um, most often that's because of limited evidence in the outcomes but also because there's a, a lot of regulatory issues, and it's just not available in many countries. So these authors identified nine mushroom poisonings from October 2010 to, uh, to August 2014 from five independent families, and six of those patients met uh, criteria for the study, which was an admission to the hospital with a suspected amanita intoxication and predicted acute liver failure or signs of uh, ongoing acute liver failure at the time of their evaluation. The intoxication was either confirmed by patients with or without the help of a mycologist, 
Um, and so we weren't always able to get a definitive amanita ingestion. But at the least, the patients all had significant acute liver injury. They, in table one, you can sort of uh, go through all of the time periods that were used in the study. So the mean time of onset of GI symptoms was about seven hours, actually. So just after that, mm -hmm. sort of like four to six hour um, time period. The admission to the local hospital happened within 28 hours post-ingestion. And then transfer from the local hospital to the tertiary center was about 20, uh, high 20s hours. And then ECAD, once at the tertiary center, they were able to start within 3.5 hours after admitted to the ICU. So in addition to that, they had a, a pretty good success listing these patients for high urgency transplant, um, mostly uh, in a time period shorter than 11 hours. Um, the table, table two, sort of A through F, goes through each patient and shows all of the parameters of the cases that they detail in a minute. Um, four of the patients were listed for high urgent liver transplant out of the six. Two were not listed because of their comorbidities. Um, but all of them were delisted shortly after initiation of ECAD here. So they go case by case. So we can, they're interesting cases um, that we can just briefly uh, highlight the, the main points of them. So case number one is actually a family, but this particular patient is the father. Uh, it's a 56-year-old uh, with a history of hypertension and some single episode of pyelonephritis who ingested a mushroom meal with his family the day before for dinner. Six hours post-ingestion, he develops nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and leg cramps. Oh, the wife. The, <laughs> the wife's husband and two children also had the same meal, probably less in, uh, of a dose ingestion, and they have milder symptoms. The mycologist could not ID these leftover mushrooms because they were too degraded, but she did, um, or he uh, did go on to say that uh, they could identify them as amanita, just could not further Speciate um, them. The husband and one child also developed transaminases, but they remained stable. This patient received sylvinin, charcoal, and uh, IV fluid, went on to develop a fever, um, significantly rising transaminases, uh, other evidence of synthetic dysfunction in terms of coagulopathy, and was transferred to the ICU and listed for transplant shortly after arrival. They got standard therapy. So the authors describe standard therapy, I think, in table three, um, which every patient got in their ICU, regardless of what they had gotten at the prior hospital. Um, so this patient then underwent three ECAD sessions on three consecutive days, uh, and her LFPs reversed. She normalized her synthetic function, which you can see in uh, 1A, uh, figure 1A, table 2A. Her AKI, which she had also developed, resolved in days, and she was taken off the transplant list, was discharged from the hospital within four days. Case two is the daughter of uh, the former patient. She's otherwise healthy, had symptom development at 11 hours, and a rise in LFPs, which apparently improved so quickly with two ECAD sessions that she was never actually listed. She was put on the waiting list and taken off the waiting list. She was transferred back to her local hospital and discharged after about four days as well. Case three is a separate family. This is a 47-year-old male without past medical history who came in six hours post-ingestion of self-collected mushrooms with abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. 
The next day, the patient was admitted to the local hospital and then transferred to this tertiary center and the ICU for rapidly rising LFTs. Initially, had gotten silabinin and NAC, and then got standard treatment based on this ICU's um, treatment protocol. He had worsening labs, he had an AKI, he had pretty massive edema of the extremities, um, an ultrasound showed hepatic parenchymal swelling, no signs of obstruction. He got two sessions of the MARS ECAD. Um, his was stopped earlier than they had wanted because they um, were concerned for a hit type 2 in him. Um, but it uh, apparently worked well enough that he was so much improved that by the time he received a donor offer, they declined it. Uh, his API also resolved and he was discharged in 15 days in what they call general good condition. <laughs> uh, case four is a 67-year-old male, history of hypertension, uh, hep B hyperthyroid, and cachexia. So he's um, one of the comorbid patients. Um, he presented with acute liver injury 10 hours after ingesting a self-collected meal. So the theme of self-collection is ongoing. <laughs> Um, this resulted in non-vomiting abdominal pain. He had gotten uh, charcoal, sylvine, and NAC, admitted to the ICU, and after two ECAD sessions, his LFTs improved so rapidly he was never listed, but also didn't meet qualification to be listed because of his comorbid status. He was discharged at 10 days. Case 5, 58-year-old female, uh, a couple of uh, insignificant uh, pieces of medical history like hypertension was transferred to the ICU 33 hours post-ingestion. Um, this was unfortunately, uh, she had a meal of mushrooms that were collected by her relatives, and she ate the largest volume out of her family who had very mild symptoms. On presentation, she had very elevated LFTs and an AKI, um, received psilobinin, charcoal, lactulose, and then standard therapy in this ICU. She had ECAD five times in four days, and she was the only patient in this study where she had persistent signs of uh, renal injury, so she did have to undergo hemodialysis after completion of her liver dialysis with improved liver functions because of her elevated creatinine. Um, she was discharged after 15 days. Her renal function had improved. She still had to undergo treatment as an outpatient, but it actually returned to normal by eight months, so she had no uh, permanent um, abnormalities. Uh, K6 is a 78-year-old male, hypertension, and remote TB. He presented after self-collection the night before, nausea and elevated LFTs, uh, with some severe GI distress. He had uh, he got penicillin, charcoal, silabinin, transferred again um, for the standard therapy here, and uh, he received two ECAD treatment sessions, and he was discharged a week later, again, with no persistent lab abnormalities. So, as you can see from these six patients, four of them were listed on the high urgency transplant list. All of them were taken off or were offered and declined. Two were not listed because of their comorbid status, um, but didn't require it anyway. They all improved enough to go home, and it doesn't look like anyone has any persistent abnormalities off of their baseline. Um, they do go on to speak about the safety and the adverse events of ECAD. Um, the platelet counts were the only uh, parameter that deteriorated during these sessions. If the platelet counts deteriorated significantly, which I don't think they gave us a number, 
but that tr would trigger the discontinuation of sessions. That one patient, they were also concerned for hit because the circuit does use heparin. Um, also, they comment, which I think is really interesting, that the blood pressure remains stable when they accounted for those who did and did not require sort of antihypertensive, because it's a common thing that we think about with renal replacement therapy about whether we're doing hemodialysis or uh, something like CBBH. Um, this does not appear to significantly alter the BP in uh, patients that are having severe uh, end organ damage. So that's in figure two. Um, so in terms of their results, uh, in all six cases, the liver support started almost immediately on admission. That does not take into account how long the delay was to getting there. Um, and I think the biggest delay was about 30 hours until they got through an outside hospital transferred and then to the ICU. Um, everyone had significant improvement with four to, in four to six days. Coagulopathy resolved in two to three days. That one patient had a persistent AKI that normalized um, in about eight months or so. So, and, and no one really had adverse events to the MARS treatment. The transient thrombocytopenia that was seen in some cases recovered pretty quickly. Nobody died and nobody needed liver transplant. So there are a couple groups that have described uh, ECAD for mushroom-induced acute liver failure in the past. These studies are, are um, a little bit more difficult to interpret. There's one group, Fabeck from 2003. They had a, a delay of 20 additional hours until they got to the liver dialysis. Um, they also reported no adverse events, but two were bridged to transplant. Two died from complications. Two, they report, regenerated spontaneously. It's sort of hard to say without knowing all of the parameters and the patient histories in that case. There's another case out of Romania in 2003. That's uh, six PD patients. Four of six survived with complete recovery. Um, and two did not. Um, and there's mention in, in some of the other Romanian studies that uh, Liver transplant is just not available in a lot of uh, a lot of places. Um, there's some other positive studies. A 2009 article emphasized again early aggressive ECAD while patients are still stable. And then the most recent article is out of uh, Mexico. It's 38 Mexican patients with acute liver failure and cholestasis with pruritus. Um, and they concluded that uh, AL, um, ECAD was safe and effective for ALF. And it has the potential to contribute to native regenerative recovery. So they saw improvements in patients with acute liver failure and just cholestasis. Um, the other uh, ECAD modality that I had mentioned earlier is called FPSA, which is fractionated plasma separation and adsorption. So like I had been saying, that allows the inflow of patient's albumin, which is filtered by columns after the, the membrane. Um, most studies seem to think that it's also safe, and uh, it potentially also reduces the need for transplant, but there's no big studies. So, um, this is kind of an interesting study. It's a very small sample size, which most of these are understandably, but I think that they selected the patients well. Um, they were able to get ECAD on board after only a couple hours in their ICU, but um, you know, just to have the selection of patients that have obvious 
hepatotoxicity that's ongoing and to see such a quick reversal I think is really interesting. Um, but I would I would hesitate to say that that is a definitive treatment for this um, just based on the few studies that are out there, but it doesn't look like it has any significant adverse effects. So possibly at least an adjunctive treatment, maybe more studies to suggest that it could play a role in preventing definitive liver transplant. Yeah, these, these devices were uh, originally envisioned to be a bridge to transplant. It's like a liver is not always available, or you're in a country where the liver is never going to be available, and you put them on this, and they either get better or they don't. I mean, it sounds like this group in Germany where IV silymarin, Legolon Sil version, is like uniformly given, it seems. So they already had this. The problem is most of these people sh sh had symptoms that were delayed, which is usual. They showed up to their first hospital later. By the time they get to the tertiary liver center, it's a day or two later. And at that point, all these antidotes that we just talked about, a variety of silvanic, probably don't do anything. So, you know, the toxins in the liver, it's already doing its damage. We have to do aggressive supportive liver care. And the question is whether our usual ICU care is enough or this. Like I said, I kind of jokingly called it the ECMO of the liver, but that's kind of what it is. It's like an extracorporeal liver instead of a membrane oxygenator that essentially does what your liver does while your liver is being injured, toxicologically poisoned, until it can recover. And maybe it also screens out, as it suggested, some of these interleukins and other inflammatory mediators as well. Yeah. We, we don't know. Um, but you don't necessarily need to get a liver transplant if you're put on this device. You can just see how it goes, and it sounds like with an aggressive protocol, which they had here, many of them, at least in their study, none of them needed a liver um, transplant. Right. Now, I know it's, it, Mars is available in the U.S. I don't think we have it here. I think there's other hospitals in Oregon, and I know there's at least one in Alaska, but just never comes up up there, mm -hmm. with mushrooms at least, where, you know, this might be the answer. And this may be the answer for all those hand-wringing Tylenol toxicity cases that we have. Again, we didn't really address that here, but it's like, well, they're not going to qualify for a liver transplant because of a variety of other psychosocial factors, but maybe five days on a ECAD might be what they really need instead. I think it's really interesting that the, you know, because we always go back to parts of, like, if you're going to mm -hmm. pull out this big mm -hmm. therapy, like, what's the complication rate? Like, mm -hmm. you think about that with ECMO, right? Of, like, mm -hmm. how many people have complications related mm -hmm. to ECMO and lens and stuff like that. But it's really interesting that, like, these people didn't really have like, not that there's there's no, right, exactly. I don't know about catheter induced infection, but it seems like right, they grew so rapidly they went home, so yeah. they didn't specifically report that. Yeah, right? I think a lot of the complications are acute. They're due to catheter dysfunction, exactly. or clots, or things like one of them. You mentioned the heparin induced thrombocytopenia, which right, you have to look right. out for, but because um, the blood has to be coagulated to make it through the circuit in the first place. So it's probably our best guess as risky as dialysis is, and we do dialysis quite a bit. Um, so just one more thing that's out there. If we can get the, talk, the antidote, if we want to call silabinin an antidote, to the patient early enough, maybe it works. But that's almost never, ever the case, and certainly when we try to use the Legolon cell and the 
open label trial here in the United States, it takes at least 24 hours to get there if you think about it. And so it's there. We can still potentially call for it, but it's hard to get into the patient in the interim. We try to give them oral silomarin, silobinin, whatever the local hospital can buy at the local health food store. And we don't know the formulation of it, whether it's one of these encapsulated forms or not. Um, but we use big doses in those trials. They're using 70 and 140 milligrams. We're using like 1,000 milligrams. So maybe we're overcoming some of the bioavailability problem by just giving a whole lot of psilobinin. So we still don't have the answer to all this for what to do with the mushroom poisoning. I don't think there's ever going to be a real double-blinded study in humans that will give us the answer. Maybe if uh, an investigator develops a large animal study to experiment with, you know, 10 whatever's dogs, pigs, uh, that makes sense, then maybe we'll have a better feel for it. But I think for now, we're doing what we're doing. Um, I think almost everyone gets snack. A lot of them get syllabinin orally here in Oregon and IV elsewhere, but uh, we don't know if either of those things work. So unfortunately, you have to leave a little bit unsatisfied. Um, maybe the best thing is, as someone mentioned, is don't eat those mushrooms you go find in the forest. You know, buy them from the supermarket. And or be happy. <laughs> Just start out with your milk thistle before you go on your, on your hike. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, both here and electronically, for uh, reviewing articles for us. And until next time, it's the Oregon Poison Center. We'll see you then.